Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I'm your host, Adam Lowther. And today we have with us a guest we've never had before. Dr. Jennifer McCardle is a Senior Director of Futures at CAE, a company that provides training and simulation for defense and security customers. And she's also a Senior Fellow at the Center for New American Security, CNAS, and She's with us today to discuss a topic that, again, we've never talked about before, but is perhaps more important than ever. Of course, that topic is wargaming. And with the challenges we face with North Korea, China, Russia, you know, now we've got a, a new problem with Hamas in Israel. We've, we've got a lot going on. And Wargaming is a tool that can help us think through these problems and come up with potential solutions, sort of give you a sense of what's what's in the realm of possible. And so with that, Jenny's an expert at it. So we thought, you know what, let's have her on Nucleocast. Jenny, welcome to the show. Well, uh, well, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure um, to be here. So you spent most of your career, you and I met probably... I know it's been at least 15 years ago, I think. And you have built this career over that time where you have become one of the sort of one of the, the, you know, leading lights, particularly in working with not only government. So guys like me, you know, that spent much of their career in the government, you know, I did title 10 war games for the air force, but you've taken it in both the government direction and how can corporations use this? I, I mean, you spent some time working, doing some gaming. And so you've got a, a very broad background in wargaming. So from with all of this background, you know, maybe talk to us like, what is wargaming? For those of, of our folks out there who've never really done it, what is it? So that's actually a really good question because there is no common definition of wargaming within the professional wargaming community. So as a result, wargaming has a certain definitional wooliness to it, which can generate a lot of confusion among wargamers and among modeling and simulation professionals. Um, but despite the fact there's this lack of clarity, there are some commonalities from a definitional standpoint. So War games involve human players or actors that are making decisions within an artificially designed arena. You know, games consist of players who make decisions, an environment they seek to influence, rules that govern decision making, and then adjudication models. And those can be computer based or even mental models that specify how their decisions or actions affect outcomes. And I guess to make this much more con concrete, you know, when I think about wargaming, I tend to break it down into two different categories, um, which you alluded to, and it's based on what a wargame is seeking to achieve. 
And I typically talk about experiential war games or analytic war games. So experiential war games are war games that are conducted for the purpose of training or education. And then analytic war games can take many different forms. So they can be war games for concept development, um, capability development and analysis, or war games to support operational plans through course of action analysis, among like many other things. So in short, these types of war games help us make better decisions. And I guess what um, makes me somewhat different from a lot of war gamers is that not only am I someone that's been involved with classic kind of tabletop exercises, but I also come from the modeling and simulation um, field. And I think this is actually the place where a lot of confusion um, really yeah. starts to rise to the surface. So, you know, war games are not, and they shouldn't be confused with computer simulations. So simulations can be run over multiple iterations to develop really precise answers to explicit questions. And then in contrast, war games are not entirely replicable. So though a scenario can be rerun using the same input data with the same set of players, they make may make wildly different decisions each time. And it's that very unpredictability that allows war games to spur the production of new ideas. That's what makes them unique. So for, you know, the sort of the classic example of war gaming is, you know, you go back to the Naval War College, inner war years, and, you know, essentially the Navy sort of planned out the Pacific campaign through these many iterations. And, and, you know, if you read the, you know, the articles and books that have been written about it, they, they sort of fought the Pacific war before the Pacific war was fought. And, you know, for me, what I'm familiar with is, uh, you know, as an Air Force guy, we did big Title X war games that took us six months to build the scenarios. It was, you know, basically three iterations. There was red and blue, and then you had adjudication. And, you know, within each move, you could make inputs and white the white cell would adjudicate. And then at the end, you you know, you come together and then there's a report written. That's one. Then there's tabletop exercises, which you can do much this. You sort of play it out, but you only have like a day or two and you can't spend, you know, six months building it. And then as an army guy at Sam's, they would do exercises where they've got, you know, a map. So, you know, different services think about it differently. And, and in the army, they're moving, you know, units around on a map. And so for me as an air force guy, I was like, what are these army guys doing? Cause it was a very different experience. And so that's how I look at wargaming and what I've seen. But so I'm not really sure when you talk about modeling and simulation, like how, how do I build an image in my head that, that is different that says, Oh, this is what modeling and simulation is. And then what other types of wargaming are out there that perhaps I, I'm not even familiar with? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, so Peter Perla in the 1990s, um, he coined this idea, and he's he's oftentimes considered like the godfather of modern day wargaming. He coined this idea of the cycle of research. So it's this idea where you move from war games into you know classic kind of computer based modeling and simulation tools and into experiments, and that's always been aspirational and more and more technologies are being brought to market that I think could make that a reality. But what's really interesting is if you look at that first part of the cycle of research, 
war games itself. As you, you talked about, there's just a range of different types of war games. And so when I think about that cycle of research just applied to war gaming, I think about how you move from these early, you know, very free-flowing, ideational, unstructured war games all the way into more rigid war games. So typically, when we talk about that, we're thinking about starting with things called like seminar war games. And they're pejoratively typically called bog sats, so a bunch of guys and gals sitting around a table. And essentially, it's that. It's this kind of free-flowing conversation that allows you to ideate around a concept. And as you start to really kind of grapple with that concept and really start to understand it, you can add a little bit more structure into that game. And that's where you can get into things called matrix war games where oftentimes you'll have a dice throw or a human adjudicator kind of facilitating the game, and it's still based on this player-to-player -player conversation. And I think a lot of tabletop war games, you know, they're oftentimes leaning into matrix-type games. And then you can move, you can add in even more structure, and you can have these, you know, what's called free or expert-adjudicated games, where someone who's an expert in the phenomena under question, so I don't know, say that is... Um, you know, you know the kind of force on force lay down within the Korean Peninsula. They will be adjudicating that game, and then you can also then you can move into more rigid war games. And rigid war games, honestly, it could be a board game. This is where you can get into computer based war games, where it is a there is like a clear rule book that guides adjudication, and that's where you start to move into modeling and simulation based tools where there is a clear way that in there it is a very clear rigid not flexible way by which decisions are adjudicated and the way a, a simulation can unfold and that's where i think modeling and simulation starts to get quite powerful you move more into that you know further down into that cycle of research because if i have if i understand the phenomena under question and i'm start to un trying to understand the way a various scenario can unfold. I can run these war games and then I can start to employ modeling and simulation based tools. I can run them faster than real time. I can run thousands of simulations in tandem and I can start to understand the breadth of ways a scenario can unfold, which can give me greater analytic insight. And then from there, that's when you can start to run experiments in the classic sense where you can have a mix of a live experiment with virtual and constructive injects. It can take a range of different forms. But the nirvana, if you will, is to be able to do all of those things, to move from that early kind of ideational game through that cycle of research and to really get after that whole kind of analytic cycle. So one of the things that, you know, in sort of my experience with war games is that the knock on them has always been that they take a lot of time to build and prepare and that they're expensive. Is, is this sort of a common view? Have we, is there a way to overcome that? Or is that just sort of, yeah, that might be true, but what you get out of it is well worth it. So I think that's changing and there's a couple different ways to look at that. So one is, um, you know, you're looking at wargaming as this one kind of thing without recognizing that wargames can take many different shapes and sizes. And depending on your experiential or analytic end goal, there might actually be a simple, low-cost, you know, board game that can address that, especially with a lot of kind of 
education or training-based end goals. Now, when we think about, you know, highly complex, like Title X, war games, you know, they are time-consuming. They are very expensive to put in place. And I think a lot of that is a reflection of, to be honest, the state of modeling and simulation tools. That same critique can be leveraged at a lot of modeling and simulation-based training events. And that really comes down to the way that we have architected these events in the past. So in the past, when we think about modeling and simulation tools, they've oftentimes been these kind of monolithic beasts, to be perfectly blunt, where everything is very tightly coupled. So your terrain-based models are tightly coupled with your force-on-force-based models, which are tightly coupled with you know any AI or you know, other kinds of models that you want to have as part of that simulation. So as a result, if that simulation does not meet your training or your analytic end goals, you're going to need to bring in new models that can take a lot of time to, from an engineering standpoint, to integrate those new models into that kind of simulation so that you can, you know, experiment or train for, um, a given scenario. Now we're starting to move towards this model where we're using these, what's called these modular open systems approaches to modeling and simulation-based architecture development. And you're also seeing this being pushed on the wargaming side as well, where you look at the development of models as a range of microservices. And the goal, and this is very rich and it's never this simple, but the goal is that you can integrate these various Um, models together like Lego blocks, where you can kind of plug and play much more easily with them so that it's much easier to set up that scenario that meets your training or your analytic end goal in a way that it hasn't been in the past. So you're not riddled with so much tech debt, if you will. So if I want to try to build an image of what you're talking about, would that be essentially that it's kind of like I've got a, you know, like a, 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 GUI. And on that, I can say, okay, I want uh, the Korean Peninsula. I check that box. I want North Korea's military capabilities. I want South Korean U.S. military capabilities. And then I want to, and then I ask it a question and then it gonculates and then it comes back with a, you know, like with an answer or a range of, is, am I sort of thinking in the right or the wrong way to where you can like pull I into where I could say with that same, you know, that same system, I can say, okay, well, I want the Russian capability, the Ukrainian capability and Nate, you know, is it like picking from a bunch of data sets and then having it run an analysis on those data sets? So I think, I think, yeah, I think you're getting at the, the aspiration. So if you, if you were to break this down from an architecture standpoint, like you like you were doing, you've got this, you've got an interface. So some way that you kind of access this world, whether it's through a laptop, I don't know, your cellular device, um, could be a VR headset, although I don't necessarily know if that'd be useful. And then you've got this visualization layer. So, you know, something that visualizes in 3D or in 2D, that kind of world that you're looking at. And then underneath, you would have what would basically be a content ecosystem. So it would be the models that are important for that scenario. It could be different types of force-on-force models, um, different models of, say, the information environment or the cyber environment. 
And the goal is that all of those models will be populated as a series of microservices so that a training de designer or an experiment designer could choose the right models and that they would they would interoperate together without a lot of engineering hours. Now there's obviously two problems with this. One is that these these would need to be designed for interoperability from the start and we are just starting to move from an architectural standpoint in that direction. So we're not quite there yet. That is the aspiration, but we're definitely not there yet. The second is, do I actually have good models, representative of models for what I am trying to understand? And that's a huge problem, particularly when we're thinking about, you know, things like Dime. So we're trying to develop these strategic level war games around that get at different levers of national power, like diplomatic information, military, economic. We just don't have good models of that. We don't have good models of the information environment, the strategic level. We do not have good diplomatic models. Uh, there is not a good model that says if we employ these you know, economic tools of statecraft, these economic sanctions against the Russians, that they will do X, Y, and Z. I mean, if we did have those models, perhaps we would have made different decisions um, in the lead-in to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We just, we just don't. And we probably never will because we're just not clairvoyant. Um, and, you know, there's like that, that, um, that phrase, like all models are wrong, but some are useful. You know, it's a pretty useful yeah. quip. Like at the end of the day, you're using these tools not for predictive purposes or to give you an answer. It's to help you make a better um, decision. So the the goal is to start developing models that get you part of the way there to increase kind of understanding. Um, but I, I'm hesitant to ever say like, you know, war gaming or modeling and sim can actually give you a concrete predictive answer. So we're at that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to turn to wargaming for understanding nuclear threats and nuclear. And so the question for when we get back is, can you talk about the utility of wargaming for those of us in, in the nuclear world who think about that? You're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Analog Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Jennifer McArdle and we're talking about wargaming. So, Jenny, I, I gave you a question before the break. Give me the perfect answer. Oh, goodness. All right. Um, <laughs> You know, when we were first starting, when we were first chatting before this kicked off, um, I I heard that there was a hunger for history, um, particularly since Oppenheimer came out um, uh, within your organization. So I thought maybe maybe it makes sense if we're thinking about nuclear issues and wargaming to go back to the Cold War, because I think it gets at a lot of the issues we're talking about between different types of tools um, and you can start to see how wargaming can help us better un grapple with these kind of questions today. So what's really interesting is um, in the early Cold War, Rand very much laid the foundation for the ways in which the U.S. approached questions around nuclear deterrence. And this was primarily done through a range of war games and simulations. And what's really interesting 
um, is Rand employed two different sets of wargaming tools to understand the impact of nuclear weapons on international politics. So one set of tools was primarily quantitative, and it was run by the mathematics division at Rand. And in many ways, you can think of this as the kind of precursor to computer-based simulations today. And then the second was primarily qualitative, and it was led by the social sciences division at Rand. So you can kind of see how I'm, you know, starting to set up the juxtaposition between computer-based models and simulations and tabletop exercises. So the mathematics division at Rand, you know, obviously they're the quantitative group. So their ideas really became the kind of dominant discourse during the Cold War. And they used things like game theory and ec economic modeling of deterrence to kind of frame and conceptualize the bipolar international system. And the qualitative one um, was kind of, it was kind of shunted to the periphery during the Cold War at Rand and within academia. And their approach brought history, culture, psychology, and emotion to the forefront um, through kind of this, this, this game place play that was grounded in kind of a discourse that sought to immerse players in gameplay by making them kind of think through the, the crushing responsibility of their decision-making around nuclear issues. And what's really interesting is um, Reed Pauly, he's a professor at Brown, he's gone through the archives around these war games. And regardless of the game type, players abstained largely from using nuclear weapons, um, but the games did go nuclear a few times. And this has primarily been explained by scholars based on the divergences in game design. Obviously, the latter games that brought kind of history and social science to the forefront, the role of emotion was a key kind of input to the game design, whereas with mathematical models, they kind of buried human judgment within the game's parameters and didn't make it an explicit input. And I find this juxtaposition in game type really interesting, and it's really kind of useful when we think about the divergences in tools, because generally there is a schism still today between the wargaming and the modeling and simulation community. And in my mind, the debate really shouldn't be about which tool is better, because each has its own strengths and weaknesses. Um, the ideal is to use a range of tools to best examine a question because it's really through this confluence of methodological approaches that we can make better decisions. So if we were to take that model and apply it to understanding kind of questions around nuclear deterrence today, um, the, the ideal would be really to kind of use a confluence of those tools. So a mix of you know, these qualitative tabletop gaming approaches where we can really understand you know, the psychology around certain kind of key leaders like Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un and you know, mix it with various quantitative approaches that can allow us to better understand various archetypes around different deterrence frameworks, whether that's you know, a denial dominant framework, one that employs like mixed deterrence or an offensive dominant framework. So you know, it's through the confluence of these wargaming techniques that we can make better decision-making decisions versus you know, choosing to employ one technique versus the other. So one of the big challenges, I was talking to somebody over the weekend and we were talking about how there's, you know, there's some, some thinking that, you know, that when it, particularly in regard to China, that what you have to do is you have to respond to Chinese aggression 
in a way that the Chinese never thought you would respond. And this is sort of the challenge with, with humans is as soon as they know that you're looking at them to see what they are going to do, they try to do something you don't expect. You know, it's, it's what makes, you know, it's why, you know, my physicist friends, I say, Oh, you do the easy science. It's replicable. You don't do science where, you know, your subject is always like, are they looking at me? Do they want to know what I'm doing? Well, I can't let them, you know, that's, that's much harder. And so when it comes to war gaming, you know, from, you know, the games I played, the adversary is always doing unexpected things, you know, things where you're just like, okay, stop the war game. We, we, why did you do that? And so I wonder how, how do we best build games and simulations to where we understand, you know, maybe, maybe we don't predict it, but we at least know, okay, guys, we think they're probably going to do this, you know, with the greatest statistical validity that this will be what they probably will do, but you got to watch out for these two or three other things because that's their unexpected play. Can, can we get to that? Or is that more than we can expect? I think we can get to a place where we can start to better understand the breadth of ways that something can unfold. And that really goes back to that kind of, you know, cycle of research that I was talking about. Um, and the, you know, the kind of confluence of methodological approaches, because, you know, you hit at something really important, which is just the, you know, human unpredictability and how war games are great at allowing us to kind of grapple with that unpredictability. And I think what's really good about some kind of deterrent co deterrence conversations that are happening today, and, you know, the 2018 nuclear policy review is really strong on this, is that there's no like one size fits all approach to deterrence, that deterrence has to address the unique perception, goals, interests, strengths, and vulnerabilities of different potential adversaries. And that really requires us to have a firm understanding of the other, if you will. And, you know, qualitative war games that bring in SMEs that have taken the time to really understand, you know, decision making within the communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, um, within North Korean leadership, within the leadership in, in Iran, or, you know, understanding how the IRGC works. I mean, those... That, that is critical, and that is why I think, like, within early kind of ideational and SME-based war games, having those insights to give you the flexibility to kind of pull out that unpredictability is really important. And that's also why I think it's so important to do that first. And then as you start to better understand through those war games, hey, we think that a senior leader or we think that the government might respond this way and that these levers of power might actually be the most beneficial for us from a deterrent standpoint, then to start to feed the outputs of that into um, a series of modeling and simulation-based tools where we have decently good models, because that's when we can run thing, run a simulation, you know, faster than real time, thousands of times, and start to understand the breadth of ways that things can unfold. So that's this is why I've always been a big advocate for having a confluence of tools to kind of address a problem, to really try to get after that cycle of research. I think the biggest problem within the wargaming community today, to be honest, is wargames tend to be one-off events. Um, so it's really just a, it's a 
So people will criticize them as being a sample size of one um, without recognizing that they're really meant to kind of, you know, illuminate kind of key questions and uncertainties. Um, we don't look at having this iterative kind of cycle of research around wargaming. And that is actually where I think the real power would be um, if you're trying to grapple with, you know, very challenging problems. Now, it's that time in the show where I like to bring out Bob. Now, Bob is my genie, and he grants three wishes to all guests, but they got to be about the topic at hand. So let me rub my magic lamp. There's Bob. And Bob, you're lucky. Three wishes about wargaming. So what, what would wish number one be? So wish number one, I think, is that um, from a... We're game sponsors, so like an acquisition standpoint, that we will start, that our government will start asking for the cycle of research. So instead of asking for a war game for a certain kind of problem, so let's let's take the you know unfolding crisis between um, with Israel, um, Hamas, and you know in Gaza, instead of asking for war game, um, ask for that full cycle of research. And then closely tied to that, to number two, is if we want to make the cycle of research a reality, we also need to break down silos within the wargaming and modeling and simulation community. So we have some brilliant wargamers that are in think tanks within the federally funded research and development centers, um, within academia, and then we have some great modeling and simulation professionals within industry. We are not incentivized to work together we genuinely all work in silos. So if we really want to make the cycle of research a reality, not only do we need to be incentivized to work together, but we have to start like, we have to actively start reaching out across our communities and trying to work together um, and recognize that, you know, one approach isn't necessarily better than the other, that, um, that we can be more powerful as a community um, if we work together and we try to better understand each other's methodological tools. Yeah. So now you got one final wish. What's that? One and final w- wish. World peace is, you can't wish for world peace. Bob's already granted that one. Uh, so final wish. Um, so I guess the third is for, um, for more people to be exposed to war games and to better understand how they can be these very powerful experiential tools for learning. So I would like to see war games more broadly used within the services um, to be pushed down um, from, you know, the officer level into the enlisted level. Um, And we're starting to see some really good work in this space. So for people that are interested in getting involved in war gaming, the U S fight club, works to make war games far more accessible. You could just Google US Fight Club and join this club. It's a nonprofit. But I would like to see uh, far more opportunities for for the services and for our warfighters and for our civilians that support our warfighters to war game and to take advantage of these tools. So as we end the show, you have you know you get this chance to sort of leave our audience with a big takeaway. So what would your sort of your final takeaway be for the audience? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess to just reiterate what I've said, you know, wargaming is one tool amongst many tools and wargames can take many different 
shapes uh, based on what your experiential or your analytic end goal is. And for war game to be powerful, you have to start with what your end goal is and your sponsor has to be have a clear understanding of what it is they want to achieve. And you work backwards from there. And sometimes a tabletop exercise or a simple board game can achieve that goal. And in other times, uh, we might need to employ technology and modeling and simulation. And it really just depends on what you're trying to achieve. And so being flexible and being open to the fact that different tools and methodologies can address different problems and that it's through a confluence of different techniques that we can typically, you know, spur the best ideas. I think that's probably the most important takeaway. All right. Jenny McArdle, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. Well, the first thing I would say about, you know, this discussion is that, you know, I've known Jenny since she was, uh, she was much younger and she was, you know, working on Indian politics and then to now see where she is in terms of being one of these really, really uh, expert war gamers and modeling and simulation folks, it's, you know, just from a personal standpoint, it's great to see how she's developed into a, what is a really critical field. And then to hear about what she's doing both with CAE and, you know, CNAS and just sort of what's going on in the modeling and SIM and the wargaming world and what they're thinking about and how they see it, you know, contributing. That was a really interesting discussion to have. So hopefully, if you weren't all that familiar with wargaming, if it's not something you've done more than just a little, hopefully you gained something from that conversation. Because uh, I enjoyed the talk. So hopefully, hopefully you did as well. This has been a production of the Anwar Deterrent Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Chanington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunkle. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NuclearCast.